This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And today we've got an excellent episode for yeah, you. We always do. We've got Mike Hofer back, managing broker from Century 21. Yeah, yeah. Popular By popular demand. Mike was uh, was great when he was on before and a lot of people uh, really liked what he had to say. So we brought him back to address a different topic this time. One near and dear to his heart. Yeah. Vancouver millennials and the struggle to stay in the lower mainland. So I got to ask you, Matt, why are we talking to uh, somebody who has purchased properties in the 80s? Uh, obviously, he's not a millennial. That's right. Why Mike is so such a great guy to talk to is, A, he has 30 years uh, of real estate experience, right. or 30 plus years, uh, and he has three kids, and they're all in that age category of... So they eight, are millennials. 18 through 34, I think, is is at least how... Right, right, right. So does that... What if you're on the cusp? Uh, which neither of us are. No. Uh, anyways. So, well, this is actually... It, it, it's a hot topic right now, especially because we just had... Van City just released a new report called No Funds city yeah play on that no fun city of of vancouver a few years back right 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 but i actually think no fun city is probably more uh apt 
yeah, definitely more apt. We're we're more because we have a lot. Of, we have a lot of fun here. We have a lot of fun. <laughs> we don't have a lot of funds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, why Vancouver millennials have the lowest discretionary income in Canada? So basically, the the takeaway of the article is saying that of the ten cities that they analyzed, yeah, Vancouver, the largest cities in the country, largest cities in the country, Vancouver millennials have the lowest discretionary income. Yeah, they fare the worst. It's the most difficult place to to live, to make a go of it, to save funds, um, actually to 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 make out even just break even and stuff. Yep, just to break even for sure. So some of the highlights of the article, um, number one, uh, if a typical millennial couple purchased a property in Vancouver at an average cost in 2016, they would go into debt about almost $3,000 a year. Yeah, and that's so they're using uh, general uh, numbers here, right? So the average couple, two people working eighteen through thirty-four, uh, the average income is seventy-two thousand two hundred forty-one dollars. And what they've done is they calculate how much a property costs per year, and this is single-family home, mind you, right? Uh, how much the average uh, single-family home costs per year, which is forty-four thousand three hundred fifty-four dollars, right? Then they uh, add on taxes, healthcare premium, food, utilities, public transport, clothing to come up with how much money's left over to grab a bite to eat, go to the movies, put a little money away. And in this case, not only is there no money to do that with, it's minus 3000 So just to put that into perspective, maybe we can talk about other Canadian cities. Yeah. That, so, for example, in Edmonton, what would, what would we yeah, be looking at? Yeah, Edmonton fared uh, the best out of all the Canadian cities, um, although potentially with uh, Alberta's economy uh, on the slide here, it, it may not be like that forever. But... Um, yeah, you have the numbers in front of you. I, I don't do, actually, I do. Yeah. So in Edmonton, uh, your discretionary annual income is about $47,000, which is the highest actually in Canada. Yeah. So that's, and, that's a lot of money. Yeah, and then so from there it goes Edmonton, Calgary, Ottawa, Halifax. In the middle, uh, right in the middle is Kitchener-Waterloo, where the uh, dis- amount of disposable income is about $30,000. $30,000. So still considerably better than negative 3000 laughing through the tracks of my tears here yeah no kidding no kidding so it, i guess what we what the report established is establishes is is what we're seeing and and if you are a millennial listening out there and and you're having a tough time saving uh there's a reason for that um and this this report is basically solidifying what everybody's been talking to how are how is the next generation of home buyers going to get into the market and also how are if they do get into the market how are they going to make a, a go of it yeah so well i should say the other thing here is that so negative 3000 looks really bad of course that is a single family home right um everybody knows uh, uh the prices of single family homes in Vancouver are are through the stratosphere so it is a little bit easier if you if you're looking to purchase a town home or a condo right. so instead of uh minus 3000 uh using those average numbers for town homes you're looking at 9548 discretionary income at okay. the end of the day and condos of course even more just with the price brackets being what they are uh, 16422 
still considerably lower from the average. And I would imagine that the average in Kitchener-Waterloo, you're probably talking about the detached. Exactly. So you're so, getting a, a proper house with a yard and still having a discretionary income of $30,000 $30, Yeah, year. so basically, you know, if we if you're talking about a one-bedroom condo in Kitchener-Waterloo, <laughs> right. yeah, you're doing considerably better than thirty k discretion. And the other thing to say just uh, before we move on to some of the recommendations, this is not including if you have children, right? Right. So the average, I have a four-year-old, uh, we pay about $1,000 in daycare costs a month. Uh, the average, uh, because it's it's more expensive for younger kids, is is more than $1,000 a month. So when right. you tack that on and all the other associated costs of having a child, uh, the numbers are uh, basically appalling for right. for making a go of it if you're between 17 or 18 and 34 here in in Vancouver. So okay, so so they get kind of to the the root of the problem and you know, I think it's a it's a very thorough report. What are some of the ways that individuals and uh, government, financial institutions, how can we actually try and curb this issue? Yeah, so there's a bunch of they they break it up in three different ways. Uh, they have recommendations for government at the federal level down to the municipal level. Right. Um, they have uh, recommendations for financial institutions and then uh, individuals. Uh, so a few of the recommendations for at the government level, which uh, this idea that they'd have a, a new housing development tax credit that would uh, benefit developers who who create permanent affordable family housing here in the Lower Mainland. Right. They call on. It looks like, and I think this this reminds me of kind of New York, where I have a couple friends who own who live in co-ops there. There's a couple co-ops here in Vancouver in the West End, uh, but they're they they don't exist uh, very often, um, so co-ops you can usually get in a little bit cheaper. But what the what the report points out is CMHC requires thirty five percent down, yep. which excludes a huge or a huge swath of the of the buying the purchasing public. Right. Well, it's challenging, definitely. There there are several co-ops, but you think about that thirty. Who has thirty five percent down to put on a co-op, even if it is. Maybe quite you know, a bit cheaper. Quite a bit cheaper than than say a, a, an actual strata freehold property, right? Yeah, yeah. So they're saying they're calling on CMHC to change those rules, uh, and one would presume uh, more co-op housing would be would be uh, uh, in the cards there. Uh, and then the other interesting, they had a couple others, but the one that struck me was repurpose public and community-owned lands to build uh, family-friendly and uh, affordable housing as well, right? So those were some of the government recommendations. At the financial institution level, this is kind of an interesting idea in my mind, and this would be specific to the Lower Mainland, is leverage private capital. So have funds for socially conscious investors uh, to put uh, funds into developing uh, affordable housing and have a, a decent return, but not not astronomical returns for people that uh, care about community and about maintaining community here in Vancouver, uh, and that seems like something that anyone with discretionary income that loves Vancouver would be would be interested in in, uh, in investing in. And then there was a number of uh, individual recommendations here. Yeah, so some of the individual recommendations. So one that's been been very popular in Vancouver. They they talk about the concept of home sharing. So what they mean by that is. You buy a detached house that has maybe a suite, and and that suite is is considered a mortgage helper. So you might get, 
you know, say $1,200 for the basement suite. Well, for approximately every $400 that you're getting in income generated by the suite, that's taking down about $100,000 worth of your mortgage payment. Right. Right. So, so they're encouraging people to, to buy properties with, with um, uh, the suite potential. So, uh, so just to be clear here, if you buy, say, a single family home for just round numbers here, one, say $1.2 million. Sure. And you have a suite uh, in the basement that's paying out, say, $1,200. That should knock off about $300,000 of your, of your mortgage. Right, so then it, approximately in potentially a single family home makes more sense than a town home in that regard because you actually have that that three hundred k knocked off sure, um, there are actually a few town very few, but there are some uh, townhouse developments that also have a suite so you Avalon get, Muse in in Southeast Vancouver actually had uh, that option sure, and I can think of a few in south burnaby and and Southeast Vancouver that have had that option as well. Um, so something like that is is an opportunity as well. But anything that home sharing is pretty prevalent and in, in right. everyone's taken this up already, I would say. So in addition to home sharing, you have this co-ownership idea as well. So I'm I'm actually seeing this happening quite a bit lately is, is young couples buying either detached houses or um, townhouses together. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and then basically living together, but sharing the costs. Taking the single family home uh, example again, I mean, you'd have to you'd have to be you'd have to have the terms spelled out fairly clear. Obviously, in this They'd case, they have or, to be really good friends. Yeah, <laughs> potentially potentially family as well. But you know, in the terms of uh, a regular East Van house, often has a suite in the basement, so you'd have say. Uh, the party living upstairs pay 65 70% sure. whatever you came with and the other group coming up with 30 35% of the down payment and right. and break up the mortgage that way and uh and then you take on obviously a, a less risk and less cost right so they also talk about um this idea of co-op housing so they're basically saying because co-op housing is cheaper that individuals should start thinking about co-op housing and especially if uh, cmhc doesn't require that 35 percent down that could be another excellent opportunity just to be clear on co-op housing that's when you purchase shares into the the larger so you actually do own the land but it's you don't have unit entitlement exactly Uh, you actually buy shares into the co-op it operates more like a business Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right um, and the last two kind of tie in together. Um, one is this idea that that they're making the case that housing is for housing. Um, in other words, uh, maybe that part of the reason that our market is where it is is because so many people have been investing in our market for financial gains and not for the primary purpose, which is to offer to offer housing. And we and we've actually had people contact us and 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 ask uh, to speak to this issue. Sure. Um, I don't know if this is the right venue for that, but one thing I would say to this idea is it's, it, it's a little bit, in my mind, the toothpaste is kind of out of the tube. Here, we live in a, in a city that's on the, on the map globally. You know, to shift your vantage point and not see uh, the potential in Vancouver housing and, uh, as, as Van City um, suggests, put, put your money into other... Um, investment tools instead, right. and uh, you know, you know, it seems, 
it seems like, yeah, go ahead and do that. You might be the only one. And uh, it's kind of hard to imagine everybody shifting away from this idea that uh, Vancouver real estate is is a really smart investment move. Especially when you think of other investment tools generating a 27% return like condos did last year. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. and then the, the the last one is advocacy and, and government regulation. So, so basically, that that people need to kind of rally together to to make sure that government restrictions are in place to provide proper uh, affordable housing, and then um, obviously to just to advocate for um, you know all of the the government regulations and financial institution uh, regulations to to kind of come to terms and and kind of demand that housing is a right. Yeah. And that's, and yeah, hey, fair enough. Definitely. So uh, moving on then. So why don't we uh, see what Mike Hofer has to offer? He's got some recommendations for individuals as well. Hope you enjoy. All right. We're back here with managing broker Mike Hofer from Century 21 in town. How you doing, Mike? Good, Adam and Matt. How are you? Great, thanks. Doing well. <laughs> so we 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 got you back on the podcast. We had a really um, uh, great response to you uh, coming on last time, and now we have a we we've decided to uh, engage you on a different topic: how to stay in the Lower Mainland. Advice from your dad, and we say that partly because you're a dad, not our dad, but uh, <laughs> but also um, because you're everyone's dad around here. <laughs> 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 but also because we know that you have uh, you have three kids, right? Yeah, I have uh, I guess three millennials. Um, my boy is twenty two, my middle daughter is twenty, and my youngest is eighteen. All are in university. Okay, great. So, so speaking about your your kids, so do you have a personal strategy? Obviously, the the context of this is we've had it. We've we've heard a lot about affordability in the Lower Mainland, and a lot of people expressing that they're they're going to be leaving Vancouver because they they just can't afford a home. Here. Yeah, it seems whether or not it's anecdotally um, or in reality, but every second or third person I speak to is talking about potentially leaving. So, we'd like to get your thoughts on it. Well, it is a concern of mine. Um, you know, it's tempered by the other thing is, do they want to stay in Vancouver? Um, you know, my son is uh, working on web-based applications. He's in the SIAT program, which is Integrated Arts and Technology at SFU. Um, he has friends that are making pretty close to six figures in the States without getting their degrees finished. Um, he has had invites to go down there. My daughter is, uh, my youngest one is in animation and has a thing about uh, anime in particular. And I wouldn't be surprised to see her spend some time in Japan since she's learning how to speak it. Um, So, but in terms of strategies for having them stay here, quite frankly, I'm just trying to keep a stake in the game by maintaining as much of the real estate uh, that I have and that the family has as a whole and just following it all. You know, trying to myself personally uh, maintain a modest lifestyle. And at the same time, too, trying to get my kids to understand that there's some certain things that you don't need to do now. I'm going to call it uh, delayed, delayed gratification or eat your vegetables last and <laughs> or your uh, dessert last or whatever, but eat your vegetables first, sorry. Um, because as I see them... I've done a little bit of reading about millennials. Uh, 
I think they get a bit of a bad rap. I think in many ways they're much farther advanced than I would have been at their age, much more mature, much more tapped in. So, But the challenge for them is to get ready for life uh, after you leave the home. And I think it's an obligation on the part of parents to try and chip in for them. There are some different strategies, of course. So, yeah, my strategy is quite simply put um, to maintain as much of the real estate as I can and leave something behind, try to build some wealth. Okay. Okay. So what, what advice over, uh, over the years have you given your kids about real estate? Do you have any specific advice for millennials? Other than don't become a realtor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, just that it's important to have it. Um, you know, whether the market goes up and down or not, it is probably very consistent. Real estate has bailed me out of uh, my difficulties from time to time. It's proven to be the single best investment I can. The advice that I primarily uh, give anybody discussing real estate and whether to buy or to rent, for example, is is the comparison of what your rent gets you in com- terms of a mortgage payment and the other costs associated with owning a piece of property. So can you give us an example of that maybe? Well, I, I think just before we started this, Matt and I, we ran some quick numbers. Uh, we talked about an entry-level condo in downtown running about 400 k It would be less in outlying areas. Um, if we assume a 5% down payment, that's $380,000 mortgage. It's approximately $380 to support 100000 right now, approximately $240 in maintenance, and approximately $50 per month in tax. That brings a total of 1734 for a condo downtown that would rent for 1850 What's getting in the way of that, however, is the current bank rules where it's getting brutally difficult for anybody to get financing. So really, sort of the indirect message is, is, no, you can't buy, you can rent, and you can pay somebody who's invested in that property so that you can pay their equity down, but you're not allowed to build your own equity, and I just think that's ridiculous. I have an ongoing love-hate thing with the banks, as most people who know me know, but I just think it's ridiculous. So a, a question in that line, I mean, most of the people uh, talking about uh, either local government provincial government, federal government, there has to be governmental action taken to to regulate and help people get into the into real estate here in the lower mainland. It sounds like from your perspective it's it's more of an issue with, with lending than it is with government oversight or intervention. Yeah, the issues with lending are the five major banks are regulated by the Bank Act, which means it's the federal government. Um, you have regional areas throughout Canada where you know, we, I mean, it's no secret we have some of the most expensive real estate in the world in Vancouver. So our issues are not the same as they might be in Calgary or Winnipeg or anywhere else. Um, so the federal government can't come in and legislate. I don't think you can legislate free enterprise. And we are in a market that is supply and demand. Currently, the demand is greater than the supply. So. That's why we've seen the market that we have, although we're in a transitional market now. So, yeah, I mean, the lending rules, if they want people to stay here, then they have to make it so people can buy here rather than rent from people that don't live here. So on a provincial level, they do try to offset some of the PTT. Um, but you know, there's thresholds in place in there and then it's not always the easiest. And quite frankly, it's not a huge help at that point. Yeah. 
So some, you know, I've done a couple of uh, interviews now with uh, about millennials and this type of thing. And one of the conversations came up about uh, creating low-cost housing, and I'm not in favor of that because I think you create a slum. And you can also indirectly create a caste system. Can you have uh, lower-cost housing interspersed in Vancouver in certain areas? I think so. You know, another thing that we're seeing now, which is a new trend, uh, it's come out in the last few years, where municipalities are mandating that new developments carry three bedrooms, uh, three-bedroom units, and that's to keep a family unit intact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the three-bedroom in Vancouver is, I was talking to somebody the other day who referred to it as the unicorn, right? That's Everybody's looking for it, and it's, it's still tough to find, so... If, is everyone looking for a unicorn? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's something. <laughs> well, it was just the white spotted leopard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something very rare, you know. <laughs> there's a certain individual in uh, Vancouver that's quite famous, and if he had his way, Vancouver would be completely redeveloped into 240 square foot apartments, <laughs> more unit sales. Um, yeah, I wrote a letter one time. Uh, the Avalon Dairy site in East Vancouver uh, was got redeveloped. It was a bit of a historic site. Yeah, uh, Avalon Muse, right? That's yeah. the development there. Um, I know the developer there. Uh, I know the group anyway. I used to manage them uh, as their real estate activities anyway, and I wrote a letter. They wanted to increase the density and asked me to write a letter to the city to try and increase the density of the property, and my whole focus was three bedrooms. You know, it's... You have the, if I guess there's, we can look at the millennials in several different ways, but from a term of, you know, the people downtown still need the servers, they still need the baristas, they still need the retail workers, and these are people that traditionally don't make a lot of money. If you force them out to the suburbs to get accommodation, now you're forcing them into situations where they're buying cars, buying insurance, maintaining cars. If they can't buy brand new cars, then they're repairing cars. And so all that adds hundreds of dollars a month. And so if, you know, this gets to a point of uh, what is important, what is lifestyle. Interestingly enough, um, in terms of the driving thing, my 22-year-old and my 18-year-old still don't even have learner's permits. So they are, my son right now is commuting from Coquitlam to Richmond on a work project for university. So and he's spending about two hours commuting and my youngest one is commuting to North Vancouver which is not a direct route either so you know it's there's a lot of different avenues to this Wow. so uh, one thing you said uh, a little ways back that I wanted to touch on because we since we started this podcast uh, we've been uh, trumpeting how hot the market is and you said transitional uh, you know, we've talked about that a bit in this office, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to current market conditions. I mean, you manage over 100 realtors here, so. Yeah, the current market conditions, um, what we're seeing is for a few weeks now in sales meetings, we've been talking about setting expectations of the sellers that the we are in what I call listing season now. Uh, if we look at most years, you will see a dramatic increase in listings uh, early, late spring. You will see inventory build over the summer. However, the buyer's pool remains fairly static. It doesn't uh, grow in that terms. And so what happens is right now where 
market evaluations were being done on properties based in December, January, early part of February, and then those listings start coming on on stream. Just imagine there's a whole bunch of those CMAs being done, and everybody's thinking that they're coming to the market at the right time, and now all of a sudden industry starts doubling, quadrupling. So then the buyers are taking a collective pause, and we've seen numerous situations now where, you know, we had one situation in the office where somebody had five offers coming in, four withdrew. And the one offer that was left had to be advised that they weren't in multiples anymore, and then they came back and wrote under asking instead of writing over asking. We're also seeing some realtors setting false expectations with the sellers who aren't following the trends. And we've had situations where people were being countered back $100,000 over asking without being in multiples. So that's the transition of where we are at right now. Um, Interestingly enough, if a property is well-priced, it may not generate multiples, but we're still seeing them sell for full price. It's the people that are thinking that they're being clever by underpricing and, you know, quite frankly, I'm tired of getting those phone calls. Right. So just to follow up to that, in, in terms of a transition, it sounds like part of this is the spring market, more inventory hitting the market. Uh, do you see this as, a, as part of a larger shift away from, you know, the last year and a half of, of a market that's been on fire? Or? Well, if I go back to 2010, I'm going to say 2012 was the first year that I had seen in my 27 years where we sort of bucked the trend and the market remained pretty busy continually throughout the year. It was on a fairly flat curve going up, if you will, or a fairly flat increase. Um, but we are getting back into what I call a traditional pattern where, you know, I, we talked about a little bit earlier, if I was to sell a house, I would sell a house in December. And if I was to buy a house, I would buy the house in August. The reason is, is... There's the least amount of activity in August in terms of buyers because most people are, quite frankly, away on holidays and enjoying the summer. Um, And inventory is at its max because you have all these sellers who have these expectations of coming out. And it really gets to the point of now which seller is going to try and uh, bid down, if you will, is about the only way I can put it right now. In other words, to undercut their competition in order to be sold depending on their motivation. Yet in December, if you have buyers that are actively looking about whether you're a Christian or not and celebrate Christmas, it is still a busy time of the year for us as we refer to it as the holiday season now. And inventory is at its shortest because people don't want to sell their houses through that. So again, it's simple economics and supply and demand. Uh, Supply is uh, the greatest during the spring and the summer. Therefore, you're going to see some of the softer prices. Maybe not even softer prices, but at least you're going to be able to go in with subjects, right? With subject to sale, maybe not competing with seven or nine other people. Not competing, and you know, uh, going in non-subject on offers, it makes everybody uncomfortable. There's a tremendous amount of risk that's involved. All we can do is advise our clients appropriately, and but yet, that's what it takes to win, and sometimes it is about winning. Whereas uh, when we get into the summer, then you do have that breathing room. So switching gears and bringing it kind of back to the millennials. So if you are a first-time home buyer, would you buy today? If I could find something that the that is what I needed to live in, 
that I could afford the payment, and the payment was close enough within a hundred bucks of what the rent was, including maintenance and property taxes. Absolutely, I wouldn't delay. And would you buy in a hot market? So, meaning, would you try and time the market? In in no uh, thinking, not to, okay. again. It, it you know the. If you look at any graph of the real estate market, it goes up, it goes down. The key to real estate is a long-term hold. So if you're going to get in and trying to do a quick score and a quick hit and get out, I don't think you should buy. The reason is is because you're losing so much money in soft cost, commissions, lawyers' fees, taxes, if possible penalties on mortgages and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So... Everything goes up. Uh, if you buy a place in a hot market and it goes down six months in a year, absolutely, then maybe that wasn't the best idea. That's the way it will feel like at that time. However, hold on. Wait to see what happens in five years because I'm going to guarantee you right now there's nothing in my mind that says over the next 10 years that we should be seeing a, any sort of downturn in the market. Get in. Get in, and if you can make the payment, do that. Mm-hmm. So on that note, um, obviously we in Greater Vancouver, there's a lot of great areas. Um, I know that now downtown has almost become unachievable for a lot of millennials. Um, what other areas in Vancouver, where would you encourage people to look? And is there an area that, that you think has a lot of potential? Where do you want to see your kids invest? Well... You know, I'm a big fan of dirt. I'm not necessarily a big fan of condos per se. Uh, They do go up like anything else, but not at the same rate. Um, I think for us right now, the keys are anywhere where you have transit. You know, you look at what's going on with uh, Brentwood now. You look at what's going on with... um, uh, Lowheed Town Center. Well, not even Lowheed Town Center. I was thinking of Metro Town, sorry. But uh, Metro Town has SkyTrain. Uh, some yes. of the Surrey places have SkyTrain now. New West as well. New West has SkyTrain. Coquitlam, we're looking at uh, what they're calling the Blue Mountain Corridor, which ironically is nowhere near Blue Mountain Street. But, um, you know, we're seeing those towers coming in. And, uh, for example, in Coquitlam, it's all surrounding around the Evergreen Line, which runs from basically... We'll be running from uh, pretty close to Coquitlam Center, uh, up through Port Moody, and down, uh, we call it Clark, or North Road. And Bose is in there now, Beatty's in there now, and we have multiple towers going up. So anytime you're on that, because it's a, it's a half an hour train ride to downtown. And another thing is to consider, is too, is if you live in an urban area like, or if you work in an urban area like Toronto or New York or Chicago, people don't think anything of sitting on a train for 90 minutes going to work. Right. So I'd like to float this idea out there. You know, you can sit on the West Coast Express, have Wi-Fi, your latte, take a 45-minute train ride from Mission, B.C. to Vancouver, and, you know, you could buy a house probably for two, dollars $300,000 out on Mission. Don't quote me on that, right? But... Certainly, I know that a little while ago I had cause to look at what the condo prices were in Coquitlam and this type of thing. And, you know, one-bedroom condos and fairly new buildings were achievable under $200,000. So that's a $10,000 down payment. And 
you know, your maintenance and all that sort of stuff. It's it's below what you're paying for rents. Because the interesting thing is, is although you get higher rents downtown than you would in other areas, the outlying areas, uh, the rents don't go down that much. Not for the accommodation. Right, right. Another option for millennials uh, buying real estate is buy it with someone else. You know, I mean, I think that's going to be more and more of a trend where you have two, three couples buying a property. Right. Which might give you an opportunity to get dirt then. Maybe a house that has two or three suites. and Two or three suites or, you know, even two suites. Um, you know, I liken it back to uh, an Italian wedding I went to um, where, you know, aunts and uncles were coming up and dropping off envelopes at the table. And, you know, those envelopes were anywhere from five to $15,000 each. And the couple goes, buys a house, and then they rent the house out, and then they go and move into the basement of mom and dad's house until, you know, they get a bit more of a stake and the equity goes up so that they can do it. Right. So. So it sounds like, based on your advice right now, in terms of just giving... uh, you know, millennials, uh, people under 35 that are trying to get into the market right now, get into the market, outlying areas where you can actually, you know, it's still achievable, uh, is, is, a, is still a very good idea. Just close to transit. Close to transit, that's the key. Um, right. You know, and I'm going to stress one other thing here too, it's modest lifestyle. Mm. You know, there was a, a report that a friend of mine shared with me you know, where the lowest uh, net worth was in Canada, and it was Yale Town. <laughs> and highest density of Prada <laughs> bags, though. <laughs> well, you know, it, it comes down to lifestyle and choices. I mean, it's um, there are some people that wouldn't go near you know, a superstore, and they will go to a Whole Foods or they'll go to a Thrifties or something like that has a different impact when you're single income trying to provide for five people. You are going to pay attention to what's going on because for every dollar a millennial spends, they have to pretty much earn a buck seventy-five or $2. So I'm going to stress modest lifestyle, living within your means, don't carry extra debt. You know, um, We were interviewing somebody that was considering joining the brokerage. And they were a previous manager for a major restaurant chain, which has a location in Yaletown. And when we discussed this, he said it was interesting because their highest rate of credit card declines was in Yaletown. <laughs> I mean, I love Yaletown, but I'm telling you. <laughs> so speaking again about affordability, so how different is it today from when you were a first-time home buyer? Yeah, because you grew up in East Van, right, Mike? I grew up in East Van. I moved out to Coquitlam uh, in my teens, so and I've been out there ever since. And I still own the first house I ever bought for one hundred and ninety-two thousand. It's uh, worth over a mil now. Um, of course, I owe a bit more than one hundred and ninety-two thousand on it as well. But um, differences. Um, I'm going to switch it a little bit here. Uh, when I with uh, within a previous uh, lifetime with Remax, I was asked to prepare information for. It was in 2007, and I was asked to prepare uh, some information for an interview that uh, my boss at the time was going to do. And the question was, what was the difference between 1982 and 2007? Okay. So in 1982, we had 18, 19% interest rates. Uh, versus in 2007, 3%, 4%. Uh, 
Um, the I believe now, don't quote me on this, but the real estate had gone up um, four or five, six hundred percent in that time. Uh, what was interesting was what had not changed from 1982 to 2007, and that was average household income. So in 1982, 28% of household income went to support a single attached bungalow. In 2007, 68%. So that's the difference. So now if we want to go back to where we were in 2007, I'm going to suggest that our market's at least 50 to 60% higher. And if uh, household income did not go up significantly from 1982 to 2007, I doubt it that it's hasn't. gone up very much. Right. So you're probably pushing pretty close to 70, 80% of household income going to support that single attached bungalow. So occasionally in the Vancouver Sun, you read uh, an older journalist write about it's always been this hard, you know, quit the whining millennials. It sounds like you're actually uh, suggesting the opposite. You know, I think the best thing we can do for the millennials, um, and Spock being that, because I'm in the leave it to beaver generation, it's, they're incredibly plugged in. Um, they're, the demand or the need for them is to get unplugged as much as possible. The need that physical contact, they need that one-on-one. You know, I was reading an article, what does a millennial look for in a real estate agent? Well, it was to digitize the information and all this sort of stuff. Right, I saw that. But at the same time, too, it still emphasized the import for the um, the importance of that physical contact and that personal touch. You know, I look at my three, they're dealing with anxiety issues. One is meditating, one is off caffeine, the other one's working out. Um, they are working on their social skills. They are working on that type of stuff. They are far more advanced than my generation ever was in terms of academics. I think the best thing we do is just get the hell out of their way and that we allow them just to grow and that we be there to pick them up and just to support them and to listen to them because they are way ahead of where we were at that age. Right. Any advice for the uh, Elf and Teddy Ruxpin generation? Uh, <laughs> The Gen Y. Gen what are, what, Gen are, what are, are we? We're, we're somewhere in between. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> now that we're getting advice. <laughs> well, I think it holds true, though. Um, all the information that I would have in that regard holds true. It's modest lifestyle. You know, I'm continually amazed at how many people don't cook anymore. Right. You know, um, I'm continually amazed at how many people just continually eat out, uh, you know. If you want to translate it to going out for, you know, buy a six-pack of beer and go home and drink it there. Because by the time you drink it in a bar, you've paid ten times the amount for yeah. it. Not that I'm encouraging lots of drinking. <laughs> but, the, you know, it, it's a tough world. And there's a lot of people that you're being hit with a lot of marketing and a lot of stuff where people want you to spend their money. I think you just have to be smart about it and pick and choose what you want to spend your money on. So just, I guess... I would refer to a book, The Richest Man in Babylon, a very simple book. It's been around for a long time. You know, take 10% of your income, save it for a rainy day, okay, invest it. Take uh, 20% of your income and make sure you're paying down your debt. Don't carry any credit card debt. It's brutal. Um, and then just spend the rest living. And if you have any else, anything after that, then you can go and play and party. But don't go into debt to have a good time. That's ridiculous. 
sound advice from Mike Hofer. So thanks a lot, Mike, for, yeah, for meeting with time. us again. And, yeah. uh, and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, a little bit shorter than the last one, so it's good. Perfect. Thanks. Okay. All right. <laughs>
Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. This podcast is sponsored by Common Ground Consulting. Are you developing in the Lower Mainland? Common Ground Consulting is a development management and consulting company with experience in single family, townhouses, multifamily, and commercial developments. What I love about Common Ground, Adam, is they manage the whole development process from due diligence and feasibility reports for initial purchase of land to completing rezoning, development permits, and building permits. They streamline the whole process with strong relationships with sub-consultants and municipalities and a deep understanding of all city requirements. Common Ground Consulting. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.